Would you turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 20? It's the Gospel of John, chapter 20. And I'll begin reading at verse 19 from the New King James Version. And the Bible reads, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Verse 24. Now, now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see his hands, or in his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So give me a few moments this morning to expound upon the thought of a personable, personal savior. Jesus is a personable, personal savior. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you that we have sweet communion with you. We thank you for your presence. We thank you that Jesus did what he said he would do, and that is to baptize the church with the Holy Spirit. We thank you for his presence now. We thank you for how he leads us into all truth. We thank you for how he reminds us of the things that Jesus has said. We thank you for how the Holy Spirit gives us power, the ability, and even the, the desire to live for Jesus Christ, to even walk as he walked. So thank you, Spirit of the living God. Would you, in this moment, this hour, speak through me, speak in spite of me, and give us ears to hear what you would have said to this church this morning, and then give us the ability and the capability to live it out. Lord, I pray that as the word goes forth today, that our faith would be strengthened. We thank you for this time, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have been called the synoptic gospels. And the word synoptic means same eye view, meaning that Matthew, Mark, and Luke had a similar perspective of how they viewed Jesus Christ. They had pretty much the same eye view, and that is they sought to capture Jesus in his humanity. There was a lot of emphasis on the humanity of Jesus Christ. Matthew wanted us to know that Jesus was, in fact, the king of the Jews, the descendant and the rightful heir to sit upon David's throne to be the leader of Israel. And then Mark comes along to emphasize that Jesus Christ is not only a great wonder worker as far as performing miracles, but he is also a servant he came to serve. Then Luke, the medical doctor, reminds us that Jesus Christ is the Son of Man, a messianic title that comes from the book of Daniel, proving that once again Jesus is the rightful Messiah of the world. And so when John comes along, he has a different eye view than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, whereas the three synoptic gospels pretty much focus on the humanity of Jesus. The gospel of John focuses on the deity of Jesus Christ. You see, whereas Matthew and Luke have genealogies concerning how Jesus was born, John does not start with how Jesus was born. John starts with the fact that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so he begins with a heavenly perspective, a heavenly eye view on Jesus Christ. And he lets us know that, yes, Jesus was with God in the beginning, meaning that he is God. That he as the son is in the bosom of the father and he and he alone has declared who the father is. And so we see that John's gospel starts off with a heavenly perspective on who Jesus is because Jesus is God and man. 100% man, 100% God is called the hypostatic union. As a man, he could feel. As a man, he could cry. As a man, he could hunger and thirst. But as God, he could make statements like, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. In John 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine. And so when he would make these I am declarations, those who were listening in the first century understood that he was equating himself with the I am of Exodus chapter 3. That is Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord Almighty. And so that's why he could say in John chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am. So John sets out to let the reader or the hearer of the word understand that this Jesus is not only man who was born of a virgin, but he was also the son of the living God. It is a mystery, yet it is true. John chapter 20 verse 31, John lets us know why he was writing. And he said that these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. 
So he wrote about these declarations, the I am declarations, so that you could come to the conclusion in your life to believe on Jesus Christ because no mere man can make these kinds of statements. But then he also gives you seven specific miracles in the Gospel of John to let you know once again that you should believe in Jesus Christ. From the turning of the water into wine, the healing of the nobleman's son, the healing of the crippled man at the pool, uh, the multiplication of the fishes and the loaves, walking on water, raising Lazarus from the dead, healing the blind man. These things are written. John has a particular thesis. These have been written so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name, for there is life in no one else except Jesus Christ. And so when John gives us his gospel, his gospel that's different from the first three, yet very much related and connected, we just can't leave Jesus off in heavenly places as the God-man. But we also need to look at John's writings to see that although he was God of very God, he was a very personable Savior. For he would be the one who at the wedding at Cain of Galilee would listen to his mother's request when the wine ran out. And because he cared for her, he went on and he turned that party out by turning that water into wine. And then he was so personable that he met with Nicodemus at night because Nicodemus didn't want to meet with Jesus during the daytime because his reputation was at stake and there were a lot of questions that he and the other Pharisees had about Jesus. And so Jesus took the time because he was a personable, personal savior that he sat down and had a talk with Nicodemus, one of the greatest teachers of Israel. But then Jesus would take the time with the Samaritan woman by a well, a woman that was considered in the Jewish economy to be a dog, to be an outcast. Jesus not only took time from her with her, but he was willing to drink out of her Samaritan cup and exchange saliva with this woman because he loved her so. Then he took the time to spend with Mary and Martha when their brother had died and Jesus came and they said, Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. And Jesus went up to the tomb of Lazarus. Knowing he would raise him from the dead, he still wept because as a man, he could feel the pain, but as God, he could say, Lazarus, come on up out of there. And so he was very personable in how he related to people. He was very personable. And the thing about God is that he not only loves your soul, but he loves you. Because a lot of people will say, he is my personal savior. Okay, yeah, he saved your soul, but he wants to save you too. Everything about you. He knows every hair that is on your head, whether it is natural or you paid for it. He knows everything about you. And he loves everything about you, whether those are your eyes or you got some help from some contact lenses. He loves everything about you. But not only was he personable with people, like the woman that was so-called caught in adultery. And as they lined up the lynch mob to stone her, he took the time to talk with her. And he took time to value her and to encourage her and ultimately to redeem her life from death. He's a personable, personal savior. As the old folks like to say, God sits high, but he sure enough looks low. And even when it came to the disciples, the people who lived with him and walked with him and watched him and listened to him for three and a half years, he was very personable with them as well. 
You see, when we come to John chapter 20 and we look at the passage that we're going to talk about today, um, Thomas is the focal point of this passage, one of the 12 disciples, also known as the 12 apostles. He, he is the focal point, and church history has given him a name. Because of this narrative, because of this story, he has unfortunately been given the name Doubting Thomas. So for centuries, he has been labeled as a doubter. Now, when you look at this story, if Thomas were here today, he would say, now, Brother Chris, uh, yes, I had my doubts, but I was not the only one who doubted. Because technically, all of the apostles doubted too. And no matter how much Jesus talked about the fact that he would not only die, but rise again, they had forgotten that, they did not remember that. And rather than on Sunday morning sitting out in front of the tomb with picnic chairs and having a picnic blanket and food ready to watch this triumphant resurrection, no, they forgot what he said and they were harboring up in a room, the upper room, hiding, being afraid that maybe they were next. And so they doubted because when Jesus was arrested, although they all said, we will not forsake you, they all forsook him and ran. And so the only one who came back to the cross was John, and the women were at the cross, but even the women doubted the resurrection of Jesus. I, I give the women much props because at least they were standing at the cross, putting themselves in harm's way. The men were gone, running and hiding. The women were there. But when Mary and Mary went to the tomb, I'm not talking about Erica and Tina, but when Mary and Mary went to the tomb on Sunday morning, they were not going there to find a living savior. They were going there to find a dead body so that they could finish anointing it with oil and all of the herbs that was placed on a body to give this king the proper burial. So when they went there, they weren't expecting to find a living savior. They were expecting to find a dead savior. So technically, all of them doubted and not just Thomas. So that's why we got to be careful with the labels that we put on people because they're not always indicative of what is really going on. And again, we need to be careful of what we say about people because those things can stick with people for their entire lifetime. So let's be careful of what we say about people. And I know what a lot of y'all say. Man, all of them doubted. If I was there, I wouldn't have doubted. Yes, you would have doubted too. Because I remember sometimes I'll read the Old Testament and I would see how the Lord parted the Red Sea and all that. And I was like, man, if I was there and I saw that, I would never doubt the way the people did. But those people from eternity past, they speak to me and say, Chris, if we saw what you saw, we would never doubt. Why do you doubt? Because although the apostles were walking with Jesus, the living word, Sing the living word minister because Jesus was the word who had become flesh and they were with the living word and they still have doubts and they would say to us today, y'all have the written word. We didn't even have that. Y'all got all 66 books and y'all still doubt. What's the problem? We're human. We're fallen. And I'm thankful for a God who according to the psalmist, he remembers our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So even on your best day, there will never be a full eradication of doubt on this side of eternity. 
You'll never arrive with perfect faith. We are always looking through a glass dimly. At times, we still have wonder. We still have questions, but we have a God who is strong enough and capable enough to answer our questions and to meet us in our doubts and in our skepticism. And the Lord met Thomas in his skepticism. You see, in John chapter 20, verses 19 through 20, it talks about how on the same day in the evening, on resurrection day, when Jesus had appeared to the women, and then the women said, go tell the men that I'm alive and to wait for me. When the women went to talk to the men, according to Mark's gospel, they didn't believe what the women said. So when Jesus showed up for the evening service, Uh, Verse 19, then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, Sunday. That's why we worship on Sunday. Jesus got up on the first day. In the Jewish economy, the Sabbath was the last day. Sunday is the first day. So Jesus got up on the first day, not only to start a new week, but to start a new life for all of us. So when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So when Jesus came in, he did not rebuke them. He did not make them feel bad for their doubt. He just came in and said, I know what y'all need most. Y'all need peace right now. I am the Prince of Peace and I'm speaking peace. And when you look at me, I hope that you'll have peace because you don't need to be afraid of man. So he comes and he speaks. But he's also going to show up because... Thomas wasn't there that evening service. Look at verse 24 as we deal with Thomas's skepticism. Look at verse 24. Now Thomas, called the twin or Didymus, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. So Thomas wasn't with them for that Sunday evening service on the Sunday that Jesus got up from the dead. So my question is, Where in the world was Thomas? What in the world was so important that you weren't gathering with the other apostles in a time like this? Judas has been marked out as the betrayer. He has gone out and sold Jesus and ended up hanging himself. Thomas, this is not the time for you not to be with the group. The group needs you now and you need the group. Where are you, Thomas? What are you doing, Thomas? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us what was going on, so therefore I have to use my sanctified imagination and stay within the bounds of Scripture to make sure that I don't commit eisegesis, and that is reading stuff into the Bible that isn't there. But if I take a little look at Thomas's character through the Gospel of John, we see in John chapter 11 when Jesus wanted to go back into uh, Judea, into Bethany specifically to raise Lazarus from the dead, The disciples were like, Master, they wanted to kill you there. You you have a death threat on you in that area. Why are you going? And Jesus says, I have to do the work of him who sent me. I need to raise this man. I need to minister to this man. And so Thomas says, well, since he's so set on going, we might as well go so that we can die with him. So that's Thomas. He said, yeah, yeah, let's go because it's a death sentence on him. We riding with him. We're going to die too. I like having somebody riding with me like that saying, you're just not going to be the one to take the hit. I'll take the hit with you. Now, the other dudes didn't say nothing. They're like, Thomas, why are you talking like that, man? We comfortable right here. 
And then in John chapter 14, when Jesus is talking about he's going away to build a house and a home, uh, the Father is going to have these mansions for you. I'm going to prepare a place, and you know the way that I'm going. Thomas is that student in class when everybody else has that question mark on their face, but nobody has the courage to raise their hand to ask a question. You can best believe Thomas is going to ask a question. Thomas is saying, now, Lord, um, we don't know the way that you're going. And Jesus says, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Thomas was very inquisitive. Thomas was someone who was a thinker. He was a processor. And so I would like to imagine that the reason he was not with everyone on the day that Jesus got up from the dead was because he was processing what all of this meant. He was let down. He was disillusioned. He was thinking that Jesus was about to usher in his kingdom like all of the other apostles. But then the fact that he died, it didn't fit quite into their understanding of the kingdom of God. So he's discouraged, maybe even depressed. He's a thinker, he's a processor, and he can't process with these other guys in the room. He has to go off and be alone by himself to think this thing through. And then when he has a conversation with the guys, it's going to come out that the way he's thinking is, I don't believe that he is alive. Y'all are telling me that he's alive, but I don't believe that he's alive. Look at verse 25. The other disciples therefore said to him, we've seen the Lord. Now, when you look at the Greek language in verse 25, the word said is they kept on saying it to him. It's in the progressive tense. They had to keep on telling him because he wasn't trying to hear all that. So these dudes are saying, we saw him, we saw him. Now, granted, we were doubting whether or not he would live. We doubted what the women told us, but he showed up and he said, peace to us. And man, we saw him. We saw him. And Thomas is like, yeah, right. Yeah, right. No, we saw him. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. And then Thomas says, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Because for Thomas, seeing is believing. If I don't see it, If it doesn't make sense to my five senses, then I am not going to believe it. Now, when John writes his gospel, the word believe is used 96 times. So he wants us to believe that Jesus is the son of God. He wants us to have faith in Jesus Christ. And this faith in Jesus is not always contingent upon or based upon our senses or even our logic. We have to have faith to trust God and not our own understanding. So Thomas, though, he was inquisitive. Thomas was the guy, I need empirical evidence and not just what y'all are telling me from a qualitative standpoint. I need quantitative evidence. I need to prove this thing here. And so they kept telling him. Now, now you got to see the hypocrisy up in here because Thomas, though a skeptic, is a selective skeptic. He's selective in his skepticism. Pastor, what do you mean? Well, he ran when Jesus was crucified, just like all of the others. When Jesus was arrested and crucified, he ran. Only John showed back up for the crucifixion. So only John was an eyewitness of what happened on that good Friday. The rest of the guys had to get it 
word of mouth. So as they're talking to Thomas, they're relaying what John told them and what the women told them. And so Thomas knows, because he's smart, that if there's going to be a crucifixion, there's going to be piercings of the hands and of the feet. So that's a given. You don't have to be too smart to figure that out. Jesus was crucified, so he was pierced in his hands and in his feet. But my question is, for the skeptic with selective skepticism, Thomas, you won't believe that he's alive. But how in the world did you believe and know that he was pierced in the side? How did you know that part? Well, somebody told me that part because I wasn't there to see it for myself. So John had to tell the guys who told you not only was he pierced in his hands, normal crucifixion protocol, but he was also pierced in his side after he died and outflow blood and water. Thomas, how did you know that? Because they told me. Thomas, how did you know that he's resurrected? Because they told me. Well, you won't believe that he's resurrected, but you'll believe that he was pierced. Why? What does that say about you? Well, we have a tendency to believe the bad report and not necessarily the good report. We have a tendency to believe bad news and not good news. I believe the negative. Yeah, they pierced him. Unless I can see the piercing, I won't believe. Man, you should just believe because not only did he get pierced, but he is alive. But Thomas said that ain't a no. I got to have the evidence. And so Jesus is going to have an encounter with Thomas. Look at verse 26. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. So Jesus let him wrestle with his doubt and skepticism for eight days. He didn't come fix it later Sunday night. He let him wrestle with his unbelief and his questions and his doubts and his skepticism for eight days. Pastor, why is it eight days? Well, count them off. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So Jesus showed up the next Sunday because in the Jewish uh, economy of time, any part of a day equals a day. So that's why we can say that Jesus rose on the third day because he died on Friday. He was in the grave on Saturday and he got up on Sunday, the third day. So it doesn't have to be three 24 hour periods, but any part of a day equals a day in the Jewish economy. And so Jesus said, I'm going to give you eight days or a week in our thinking to just process this since you were processing. I'm going to let you think about this on Monday. I'm going to let you think about this on Tuesday, on Wednesday, on Thursday. I'm going to let you just toss this around. What they said to you and kept saying to you, what you said you wouldn't do, you're not going to believe unless you see for yourself. So it makes me wonder, what issue are you dealing with for your eight days? What are you dealing with that is really challenging you in your walk with Jesus is something, it's a barricade, it's, it, 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 and, it, and it's real, it's real. And you're struggling with it. Is it depression that he just hasn't removed off of you, but he's letting you deal with it for eight days? Is it discouragement? Is it loneliness? Is it sickness? Is it something financial, something relational? Is it something with your temperament, your attitude, What is it that you're wrestling with? I'm here to let you know no matter what you're wrestling with, you have a personable, personal Savior who cares about what you're struggling with. 
He's not going to shame you. He's not going to rebuke you. He's just going to come to you lovingly and deal with it. And so he gives them eight days to deal with this thing and, and realizing that apart from God, this thing can't get worked through. I know I'm pretty smart, but I need the Lord to step into this experience. And so Jesus comes and he tells Thomas, man, put your finger here, put your finger there, go ahead and touch my side. And my question again is now, Jesus, how did you know what Thomas's issues were? Because when he said them a week ago, you weren't in the room. You weren't in the room when he complained. So how did you know? Well, Jesus doesn't have to be present to be present. Because he's God, he is omnipresent, he's everywhere all the time. So he knows not only what is going on around Thomas, but because he's God, he knows what's going on in Thomas. So we might as well be honest with God. He knows everything about us, so we don't need to try to fake him out because we can't. Let's just tell him what we're struggling with today. Hmm. So Jesus knew, Jesus knew. Now, when Jesus comes up in that room, he says to him, peace to you. Now, from the southern dialect, it's peace to you all. Because he's talking to a room of guys. Peace to you all. Peace to y'all. But he then zeroes in on Thomas. And he goes to Thomas and he speaks specifically to him. And he says, reach your finger here. Touch here. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Now, here's another thing I love about our God. He knows you got issues. He knows you have questions. Even on Easter Sunday, some of us still are burdened down with things. Other people are shouting and jumping and rejoicing, but your spirit is heavy with something. And you and God know what that something is. And Jesus is able to come into a room like this that's full of people and talk to you as if you are the only person in the room. He knows how to minister like that. Oh, I love everybody, but I also love you because I'm a personable, personal savior. I need to talk to you. And I love when the Holy Spirit is working in these kinds of settings and, and, and you just feel like the only person in the room is you. You and Jesus in a phone booth together. And like he ain't talking to nobody but you. When the songs go up and you hear those songs and God is not only encouraging your heart, but he's convincing your heart of something you need to trust him about. And it just seems like it's just you and the Lord. You're all alone with him, but you're in a room full of people. Or you're like the woman with the issue of blood in the midst of a crowd. She acts like it's just her and the Lord. And Jesus acts like it's just her and him. And he ministers to her regardless of the onlookers. And even as Christy encouraged us as we started the service, let's not be uh, bystanders. Let's be participants. And if you open up your heart, he'll talk to you in any circumstance, any setting, any situation. But sometimes, though, we're closed. And he has a way of just like he came into that room with those closed doors and said, peace, he can come up into your life and in my life as believers when we close our hearts towards him. He knows how to get in there and say, peace, Chris. Peace, Darina. Let me talk to you. I know you're trying to shut me out. Don't shut me out. No, let me in. And if you don't let me in, I know how to get in. I know how to get in there. And so he's a personable, personal savior. He won't let you go. Long with all of these questions. He's going to come. And then you've got now Thomas's conclusion. 
Because Jesus talked to him. It says in verse 28, and Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, there's no proof that Thomas actually touched Jesus's wounds. He looked and what he saw was enough for him to say, my Lord and my God, you are who you said you were. Now, notice when he says that to Jesus, my Lord, Adonai, or my Lord, Kyrios in the Greek, which means master, the one who's in control. You don't call a man Lord with capitals like this. You call God, the God man, Lord, because he is. He's Lord of all. And then he calls him my God. And Jesus hears these declarations from Thomas, and he does not correct him in what he says because Thomas was correct in what he said because Jesus is Lord and God. So I just want to say for a moment to those who have trouble believing that Jesus can be God. The son of God, meaning that he's of the very essence and nature of God. That's why they wanted to stone him in John chapter 5 and John chapter 10 and John chapter 8. Because he made declarations that no man should have business making. And the Jews understood that if you claim to be God's son, you're claiming to be equal to God. And you can't be equal to God. That's blasphemy according to the Jews. But Jesus is like, no, that's truth. I am the son of God. I am God the son. Hebrews 1 says that God the father calls the son God. So our God is one, yet he's plural in person. And Jesus receives worship right here from Thomas because he is the Lord and he is God. He reached that conclusion. This is the apex of the book. John is writing to get you to this place where Thomas got, and that is to dispel the doubt, to get rid of the cynicism and the skepticism and say that Jesus is Lord, to believe in Jesus as the Son of God. So before I take my seat today, I I need to ask, have you reached the same conclusion in your life? Is Jesus your Lord? And is Jesus your God? Because if he's not your Lord or your God, something or someone else is. And I'm here to say that they can't hold a candle, can't hold a light, pale in comparison to Jesus Christ. Because the Bible says if you trust in yourself, you are a fool. These rappers running around talking about their God and can't even pay their light bill. You, you must be a fool. Or because you've got money that you don't have to depend on God. But your wealth will perish with you. Jesus is worthy of your faith. Not your scientific reasoning, which also is ruled by faith. Because it takes a whole lot of faith to believe that we came from an explosion that happened millions of years ago. Man, if you've got enough faith to believe that, you should have enough faith to believe this is the word of God and Jesus is the son of God. Because I like to say, okay, that was an explosion. But how did the stuff, where did the stuff come from that started the explosion? Because you can't get something from nothing unless God is the one who speaks something out of nothing. So you can work your scientific reasoning straight to hell. And you need to be careful with that. And you need to be like Thomas and say, wait a minute now. 
He is my Lord and he is my God. And if Jesus is not your Lord and your God, today is the day of salvation for you to make that declaration and for you to come to that conclusion. Nobody else can save you. Nobody else is worthy of your praise except Jesus, the Son of God. And today is the day for you to reach that climax like Thomas. Because this thing had to be real for Thomas. Because the brother man was doubting at first. Then in one encounter with Jesus that probably took seconds, his whole life was changed. I said it took seconds and his whole life was changed. Changed to the point that once he got some of that Holy Ghost up on him, he went out witnessing for the Lord as a martyr. That's what the word witness means. It means to be a martyr, martyria, that you lay down your life for Jesus because he laid down his life for you. And so these apostles spread out and according to church history, went to various continents to preach the gospel and spread the kingdom. Church history says that Thomas, who was the doubter, is the preacher who went into India and started preaching the word of God even to the point where he was arrested and he was uh, speared by multiple spears because of the gospel. So all of these disciples, with exception of John, died violent deaths, and you ain't gonna die for something that's fake. You're gonna die for something that's real. You're not gonna die for a lie. You'll die for the truth. And so his life was changed that day because he saw the Lord Jesus Christ for himself. Jesus was a personable, personal savior. So in conclusion, Jesus met Thomas in his skepticism. And he'll meet you where you are, whatever it is, your doubt, your discouragement, your depression, your besetting sin, your attitude, your fear. He'll meet you right there. He's not going to leave you there by yourself. He loves you too much. If he's going to go to the cross, he'll come to your bedroom. If he's going to go to the cross, he'll meet you on your job. If he's going to go to the cross, he'll meet you at the dining room table. He'll meet you in your car. He'll meet you. Open up your heart to him. He's coming and he will take you like he took Thomas to a place of greater belief. He'll take you out of unbelief because that's really what it's about. Everything for Christians is a testing of our faith. Everything. Are we going to believe that God is real? The gospel is true? Are we going to believe it or not? That God is in control? Everything is a test of our faith and we become like Thomas, unbelieving. But Jesus will meet you in your unbelief and take you to a place of greater belief hand in hand. He'll meet you right there because he don't want to leave you over there struggling because he's a personable personal savior. But as the choir comes back, before before they come back, I I, got to end with this. Um, I can't let Elder Aubrey be the only one that does some shouting today. I have to join him in the shouting. Because not only does Jesus minister to Thomas, but Jesus has a word that will minister to us as well. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. So there's a blessing on people who haven't seen Jesus with the physical eye, but they know him in their heart of hearts. Jesus says there's a blessing on folks that that believe me without having to see me. Because you don't have to see me in order to believe. Because the world says, if I see it, I'll believe. But Jesus says, if you'll believe me, then you'll see. So let's get this thing right. Belief comes first, then sight. So that's a blessing on all of us because I've never seen Jesus before. 
So irregardless of the various caricatures we see of Jesus, whether he has an afro or whether he has dreadlocks, or whether he has brown hair and blue eyes and you see him hanging out at Lifeway, uh, uh, you see him as Jim Caviezel, uh, uh, that's not Jesus. The only two times Jesus is described in the Bible, they're both of prophetic origins. First in the book of Isaiah, the prophet speaks 800 years before Christ is born and he just talks about the fact that there is no form of comeliness about him. In other words, he's not walking like Saul, a head and shoulders above the rest. He doesn't have a halo around his head. We do know he has a beard and they plucked out his beard, but he was just a common, ordinary looking dude. Nothing to be desired, Isaiah said of him. And then John says, now, I saw him in person, but what he looks like in person is not important enough for me to go grab an artist and say, can you sketch a picture of Jesus so that church history can see what he looked like? Because that wasn't important to the people. No, no, believing him, not, not so much having an image of him, but John says, I'm going to give you one of the future. In the book of Revelation, he says, now, when Jesus is going to come, matter of fact, it reminds me of what I saw up on the Mount of Transfiguration when, when he let his glory show. But when he's coming back, his hair is going to be like wool. Now, this is imagery speaking of the fact that he has wisdom, white like wool, his eyes like a flame of fire. That means he has piercing judgment, his skin like bronze, meaning that he walked through the fires of judgment to set us free. And he has power and all authority. He's riding on a white horse. So he gives us a prophetic view of Jesus. But I love the fact that all Although Peter said, and he was also an eyewitness, and he said to the folks in 1 Peter chapter 1, he said, though you haven't seen him, you love him. Though you haven't seen him, you love him. So even though I haven't seen him, and when I worship God, I don't have an image in my mind of what Jesus looks like. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Get rid of the pictures. I'm just worshiping God in all of his splendor and all of his glory, but there is coming a day, according to 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Now, children of God, it does not believe understand what we shall be but we do know that when we see him we shall see him as he is and we shall be made just like him so there is coming a day Thomas you're not by yourself I'm gonna see him for myself I'm gonna see him and if you know him you'll see him too and your face will become sight and the only way to see him is if you know him like Thomas, you have a choice today on this Easter to not just come to church, but to meet the one who instituted the church, gave his life for the church, to get out of religion and into a relationship where all of your sins are forgiven and you are adopted into the family of God and you are loved with a love that you cannot even comprehend. Today is the day to be born all over again because that's why Jesus died. That's why he rose again from the grave so that we could be saved and set free from the tyranny of sin and death. And if you don't know him, today is the day of salvation. Choir, y'all come on up and sing this song. Mm -hmm.